One of the questions the commentary to, to the Satipatthana Sutta asks is why did the Buddha choose four Satipatthana? Why are there four Satipatthana? There are the five aggregates. But why are there only four Satipatthana? Because the five aggregates are really really the same as the the, the four Satipatthana. When we're mindful of the body, this is Rupakanda, mindfulness of Rupakanda. When we're mindful of Vedana, this is Vedana, Vedana Kanda. When we're mindful of the mind of Chitta, this is Vijnana Kanda. And then we have Sanya and Sankara, which are well, they're in the dham they're in Dhamma, you know, in the various places. The five five hindrances are sankara, for example. But it's really it's really all the same. It's a, just a different way of explaining the same thing. And it offers two, I think, at least two answers to the question. Well, one of them is quite interesting and makes for really good uh, food for thought. We're very practical application of the four Tatipatthana because we have this teaching on the four vipalasa, the four perversions uh, and it fits quite nicely with the four Tatipatthana. The four perversions vipalasa means looking at something or seeing something not as it is other than, than, than how it really is so it's um, like when you step on a rope if you've ever stepped on a rope and suddenly you jump because you think it was a snake then if you've ever stepped on a rope in a dark room it's, it's exactly like stepping on a, as you imagine stepping on a snake would feel like it's quite scary quite a shock so this kind of thing, seeing something not as it is, perceiving something other than how it really is. But there are four that are are truly important and are, are at the core of the Buddha's teaching. These are the uh, Subhavipalasa, Sukhavipalasa, Nichavipalasa, and Attavipalasa. So the perversion in perversion in regards to beauty, perversion in regards to uh, happiness, perversion in regards to permanence, and perversion in regards to self. And these correspond perfectly with the four foundations of mindfulness. Um, the best way to overcome the idea of beauty or the perversion of 
of perceiving beauty in that which is ugly is to, to look at that which is is ugly, which is the physical. It's the physical that we think of as beautiful. We see beauty in the physical world. And so here comes here come the Buddhists to tell you that there's no beauty in the physical world. Unfortunately, no. Well we, we use the body as a basis for our understanding our overcoming this perversion because the body is certainly not something beautiful. There's nothing well there, there, I mean, there's there's nothing objectively beautiful about anything. It, beauty has, is something that's subjective. It has to do with the mind and the, the, the feelings that it, that it arouses in the mind. The the sensations that come from seeing certain things that perhaps remind us of certain things or are are calming to the, the the senses and so on. They bring feelings of pleasure or feelings of calm to the mind or to the brain, whatever. As opposed to seeing jarring sights. So the the one thing that is most pleasing to the mind, the Buddha said, is the human body. We we find the human body to be quite pleasing, and it reminds us of so many different pleasant sensations from our parents' embrace, and of course, you know, more to the point, the sexual drive, the sexual attraction that comes from the physical body. And it, it, it comes from seeing, seeing the body as something that is somehow beautiful. So, I mean, this isn't a teaching to take, to take lightly. It's not a teaching that you can present to the world at large with much success. And that's because the world at large has no interest in objectivity, really. And they think of this as something dry or something uh, unwelcome. Yeah. Something uninteresting. The idea of, of seeing things just as they are. So they, people, people mostly are, are happy to have their likes and dislikes and their partialities. They like to find beauty in things and therefore ugliness in other things. But we can't, we can't hide the truth. And the very truth is that happiness doesn't come from beauty. It doesn't come from the appreciation of beauty. Appreciation of beauty only leads to addiction. It's something that might for a short time, even a whole lifetime, which is of course a short time, might lead to pleasurable states because of how the mind reacts to the, to the experience. It can give, gives rise to um, it gives rise to pleasure. And the, the 
chemicals in the brain provide us this stimulus saying that's beautiful, that's, that's good, that makes me feel good inside, all warm and fuzzy. You know? Or when you see the human body, when you see a, a, a beautiful body, it, it leads to hormones and you know, very strong chemical reactions which then are taken as pleasurable and, and lead to force to addiction and the de sexual desire and sensual desire and so on. So all of this is, is the, the point is that especially with beauty it's a, it's a cause for great busyness and great stress. You, know? you think of how much work we have to go through in this world just to be able to enjoy beauty and how our intense addiction to pleasurable stimuli in, uh, in terms of beauty even you know, immediate the need for immediate beauty is actually degrading the beauty of the world in the world around us Right, the, the the beauty of the environment, for example, the, the nat natural environment is something that is very calming to the mind. It's something that would have given our ancestors a great amount of pleasure to behold. But nowadays, our unending quest for immediate pleasure, which brings us high definition televisions and um, the, the movies and, and music videos and so on. It brings us pornography and all of these things are causing us to lose sight of what's important. Our need for intense experience. It's causing us, you know, most people now don't go out and look at the stars anymore. They sit inside and watch television or, or use the computer. And of course, all the beautiful the stimulating vision, visual stimula stimulants on the, on the Internet. Pictures and videos, YouTube and so on. When I was young, we used to go out and we still went out and looked at the stars. Pitch a tent and go and look at the stars and watch the stars go. Now we don't do that so much, and we're destroying the environment, and it's making making becoming hotter and so on. So you you can see how how we our life degrades through uh, our addictions, especially to to the human body. That how much work we have to do. People have to now work. 40, 50 hours a week, even more sometimes, just to you know, support their family, for example. You get married and you have to support a family. You need a big house and, and so on. All, all, all in order to, to pay for our sensual addiction. So, I mean, this isn't this isn't something to preach to preach this is evil or so on and, and, and how bad we are, but it is something to give encouragement to to give up this kind of addiction. That hey, maybe if we could give up whatever addiction we have to beauty, for example, 
Maybe we can be more content. Well, certainly we can be more content and it would save us a lot of hassle and a lot of trouble. We could live simpler. We wouldn't need a high-paying job. We wouldn't need to go into debt. We wouldn't need to stress, feel stress. and We wouldn't need to do evil deeds. We wouldn't need to trick others and other people and um, cheat and deceive others in order to get what we want. We wouldn't fight with our siblings or our, our, our spouses or our children or our parents. We wouldn't fight so much because we wouldn't be partial to this or that experience. You know, when it's time to take out the trash, we wouldn't wrinkle up our nose, we'd just take out the trash. And so on. So giving up beauty, well first of all it doesn't mean not having beauty in life, it just means not being attached to it, not putting labels on things. Many people like to think of this as finding beauty in everything. It's not really the case. You don't find beauty in anything, really. But you don't need beauty. The, the problem, people always have such a big problem with, with, with teachings like this, but the fact that they have a problem with them really is, a, is, a, is a, an example of the problem. This partiality. When someone tells you, if I were to tell you, stop, you're no longer allowed to look at beautiful things, you'd be upset. Most people would be quite upset, which is really the point. A person who doesn't need beauty will never get upset when they have no beauty. It doesn't mean they're just a blank uh, robot, but it means they always have peace in their minds. When they experience beauty, they, they have peace in their minds. When they experience ugliness, they have peace in their minds. So it's a useful thing to to be able to free yourself. It's not it's not becoming flatlined. You see, it's it's freeing yourself from the need for things, so that you can still experience these things. You can even experience all the pleasure that comes from beauty, but you don't care for it. You aren't partial towards it. Even when there's great pleasure in the mind, you you see it simply as an experience that arises and ceases. And so the same with ugliness and the displeasure or the, the, the disharmony that arises, the pain that arises from seeing ugly things. And you don't see it as painful, you don't see it as bad. So this is why the, the, the practice is to use mindfulness of the body. So even just watching the movements of the body helps us to see that, to, to break down this idea of there being an entity that we call the body, the body being something concrete or whole. When we see that, the, when, when we when we lose this concept of the body, it really takes away the idea of of, of you know, something to worry about as being beautiful or ugly. And so on. It helps us to see that in any case, the body is. As the Buddha said, a nest of sores, it's, 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 it can be a cause for great suffering. And so if we're partial towards the good, positive sensations, we'll be partial against the unpleasant ones. So this is the idea that, that 
when, we, when we're actually mindful of the body, we won't be so attracted to the human body. We'll see that it's just a series of experiences. It's not really an entity of any sort. And you slowly, through the, through the watching the body, you slowly lose your attachment to beauty, to, to, to the physical beauty. The, the body is a beautiful thing. The first one. So the second one is happiness, the perversion of finding happiness. And this this is overcome through the practice of Vedanupasana. And this is of course even worse. Now first I'm telling you to give up beauty and, and next we're telling you you have to give up happiness, right? It just gets worse and worse. But again that's the point, is when you need happiness. No, not when you need happiness. When you believe that pleasure, pleasurable feelings are happiness, then you're always going to be partial towards them and upset when you can't have them. So if I told you you're not allowed to, to enjoy or chase after pleasant feelings, most people would be quite upset about that. They think, well, how can I be happy then? And if they were... Most people, when they're without these feelings for some amount of time, they become quite upset. They become bored, they become frustrated, they become angry, and, and uh, un they, they become displeased and hard to deal with. So in this way, we're, we're, we're much like drug addicts. We're addicted to our pleasure. So we find ways to obtain our pleasure, obtain pleasurable feelings. We get quite good at it, actually. If you study yourself, you you can see where you, throughout the day, where you try to find pleasure, and where you do things for the purpose of finding pleasure. And if you watch other people, you can watch them as well, trying to find their pleasure throughout the the day. This leads to this. Okay, now it's time for this. Why? Because it's going to make, give me pleasure. Right? We take it for granted. We think, well, of course, because that's where happiness comes from. And this is the the, the misperception and the perversion, perverted perception. This means not seeing things as they are, because there's nothing positive about pleasant feelings at all. The moment that you find them positive, that you find them um, somehow better than other feelings, you become partial towards them and you become dependent on them to the extent that it, this, it can lead to a real addiction where when we don't get what we want we become frustrated, we become upset become difficult to deal with. We fight with other people, we argue. We if you ever found yourself indulging in pleasure, it's, it's interesting how when you're indulging, when you're we're finding pleasure in something, you're so pleased by it, and then you're interrupted, how quickly we become angry. Isn't it interesting? If it really made you a happier person, why would you get angry so quickly? Compare the two. A person who doesn't who isn't addicted to things, when they're interrupted, they're, they're at peace. And they weren't interrupted. The 
things just change and they're able to deal with the change. But people who enjoy pleasure so much are very easily annoyed when they don't get what they want. So we just get better and better throughout our lives of at, at chasing the pleasure, at finding ways to obtain pleasure throughout our day and throughout our lives. And so we, we, we find this comfort zone, right? and we think we've got it made, and we forget about all the suffering that we had to go through just to get to where we are today. It's very easy to forget. We're good at forgetting things. We're good at forgetting our pain. Oh, we're good at remembering it as well. It depends on the person, it depends on the experience. But we're good at forgetting all the lessons that we had to learn. We're forgetting the fact that, forgetting how hard it was to get where we are. Forgetting about the future, forgetting about death, forgetting about all the people we've seen who died miserable deaths and how we might be one of them. Because that's the other thing, when you're addicted to pleasure, gets a lot more difficult to deal with death, dying, old age. People, some people cry like babies when they die. Or we might be lucky and we might die in peace. But we have to come back and do it all over again. And the more lust, the more desire we have in the mind, the more attachment to pleasant feelings we have, the more hungry we will be when we come back. This is why people are born as beings are born as ghosts, because they die with much attachment. This is why they haunt ghosts haunt certain areas because of their attachment to certain people and so on. No, there's nothing positive about pleasant feelings. There's nothing wrong with them. Doesn't mean that we practice again to never experience pleasant feelings. But we come to be free from our need from them. We're f we become free. Whatever you say about a person who gives up these things, you've got to admit that they're free. They're no longer a slave to their desires. This is really the, the key benefit. Freedom, right? And freedom is, if you read about the Buddha's teaching, you see it's all about freedom, and that's really what this is, freedom from these things not being a slave to beauty, not being a slave to pleasure. But when we're mindful of the feelings, we'll come to see this. We acknowledge a happy, happy, or pleasure, pleasure. When we acknowledge the pain as well, we acknowledge the neutral feelings, calm, calm. We come to see, realize that feelings are all just feeling. They come and they go. Sometimes there's happy feelings, sometimes there's painful feelings. And we come to be free from any partiality or any need for one type of feeling or another. The third is the perversion of permanence. Permanence here meaning last, something lasting. The idea of a lasting being or a lasting entity or lasting anything really. For example, the idea that the body is an entity that persists from moment to moment. 
mindfulness of the mind, why mindfulness of the mind helps with this is because nothing lasts longer than the mind. No, no reality lasts longer than the mind that is aware of it. Well, according to the Dhamma, it technically physical objects last for 17 mind moments or something like this, or maximum 17. But really it's not it's not really reality. The reality is the experience. In one ex in one moment, there is the physical and the mental. So these seventeen thought moments, you say it's the same rupa, seventeen namas, one rupa, but it's actually seventeen rupas as well. Just it's the same type of rupa, and the same characteristic. Because in that moment. There is rupa and there is nama. Now this isn't exactly how the Abhidhamma explains it. But experience is only momentary. And so reality is only momentary. When you're mindful of the mind, when you watch the mind during the practice, you, only then you can see how one mind arises, another mind, one mind ceases, another mind arises. Sometimes totally disconnected. It's easy to see as you practice, practically speaking, because you'll see the mind just coming out of nowhere with something totally unconnected to the past mind. You see how judgments and ideas arise in the mind, seeming out of nowhere, and sometimes at random and sometimes chaotically, sometimes overwhelmingly. when we're mindful of the mind, thinking, thinking, or knowing, knowing, and so on. We catch the mind thinking, and see the mind arising, you see the mind ceasing, you see the thoughts arising, and ceasing. We come to see how impermanent reality is. And of course, when we're mindful of the body and the feelings as well, because, we see, because the mind arises and ceases with the object, this is why we see impermanence. And we realize that there is no mind or being or soul that lasts, that is eternal. This idea of an eternal soul is just a concept. It has nothing to do with reality. You can believe in one all you want. You can believe in God. You can believe in whatever. But they're just belief. They have no basis in reality. Reality doesn't admit of such things. is the third one. The fourth is perversion in regards to self, the idea that there is a, not now a lasting self, but a controlling self, a, um, the acting self. And so the Dhammas, mindfulness of the Dhamma, if you look at the Dhammas in the Satipatthana Sutta, it's easy to understand how this works. So first of all, the five hindrances, not exactly directly related to the perception of non-self, but are very helpful because the five hindrances are a good part of our emotions. And so we think of emotions as being me and mine. I am the one who gets angry. I am the one who wants things. I am the one who doubts when there's doubt and so on. And when we look at these things and see them just as they are, say, liking, liking, disliking, 
drowsy, drowsy, distracted, doubting, doubting, worrying and afraid and so on. All of these things that we thought were ours, we see that they're not. We're not giving rise to them, we're not the ones getting angry. Sometimes people, no matter how much they acknowledge anger, it just bubbles up and boils over. It's impossible to control. When they think they're doing something wrong or they think they're not capable or meditation's not helping, they sometimes come with these doubts that no, this meditation's not working. I keep I acknowledge angry, angry, I just get more angry. So they try to blame the noting as bring making them more angry. Which of course isn't the case. It's it's something that is cooped up inside and has been building up inside and this this habit of getting angry or, or greedy or, or whatever. Habits of doubting, for example. We're so good at tricking ourselves. We use these these five hindrances we trick ourselves with them or actually not even we trick ourselves this is, these are habits that form based on cause and effect they're not under anyone they're not under our control not, they don't belong to us they just come and they go but then of course you have the five aggregates are also here the six senses are also here in Dhamma you have many things that are useful for giving up not giving up the idea of self the point of of, of non-self of realizing that self is just an illusion or a perversion of perception is that you can't you can't really control things the mind that intends to control creates a sankara creates an artificial uh, formation you know, something that seems like control, but it's actually just stress and pressure that builds up and builds up and then collapses. The mind that wants to control, to not get angry, for example, just bottles up the anger, really. Reacts to the anger. Forces the... Forces a reaction to the <coughs> anger instead of blowing up and yelling and, and implodes it reacts by by hurting by creating suffering for oneself reacts to the anger again and again and again it doesn't actually stop the anger for example or the greed or the wanting you know, when monks don't practice meditation then the wanting just gets bottled up and bottled up and eventually it spills over and you can't escape it So this is why we have people acknowledge the anger, acknowledge the desire. Really just live through it. Let it come up. You really have to let it come up. It's really the best thing you can do for yourself is to just let it be and watch it and understand it. Because as soon as you do, that moment it's gone. That moment there's mindfulness. Very quick to disappear. The problem is it comes back and we become easily discouraged because we think it's having no effect. But that's exactly the effect. It's showing you that it's not under your control. Of course it comes back. It's not yours. It's not like you can control it and poof, it's gone. It comes back because it's a habit. And so you watch it more and more and you see, this isn't me, this isn't mine. I'm not in control here. And you give it up. 
you stop encouraging it, you stop chasing after it, you stop giving it power and feeding it, and it slowly wastes away. Because you see that you can't control it. You see that yes, when I acknowledge it, it doesn't go it goes away, but it, it doesn't that's not controlling it. It comes back and you have to acknowledge again. You have to clear your mind of stop your mind from building it, creating more of it. Until you see that it actually is not worth doing. So these are the four perception, four perversions of perception, and the commentary says that those are a reason for using the satipatthana. I just thought this something useful for us to think about when we practice or before we practice, clearing up what it means to practice. Of course, when we practice, we're just mindful, but we just use the acknowledgement. But it helps often clear up doubts to understand why this is such an important thing and what it's doing for us, why it's useful. So that's the Dhamma for today, just more a useful knowledge that we can put into practice. So now we'll practice together. <laughs>